There he is. So, good morning. Uh, hop over to Mark uh, chapter 11. And uh, today's a special day. What we just got to do was pretty awesome, um, which was sing a song that Jews would have sang as they approached Jerusalem uh, the week of Passover. And so it's an incredible time. It's the biggest festival of the year. And all of these Jews, that, what they do is they, they, they travel from far and wide to be able to begin the climb because Jerusalem's built on a hill. It's built on a mountain. So they begin this climb. So it's called a song of ascent. And so Psalm 113 to 115 are all songs of ascent, songs they would have sang as, you know, along their way as they approached Jerusalem. And so, it was, uh, so what we just got to do was sing a song, His Love Endures Forever. Those words come from Psalm 8, 118, as Zali mentioned. But to actually imagine all of us coming together, and perhaps we don't really know each other, we're from different villages, but we come together on that road, um, that same road, by the way, that probably was used with the Good Samaritan on the way down to Jericho, but now it's up to Jerusalem. And we're, we come together and we start to sing these songs together. And as the temple becomes more and more visible, we sing louder and louder and louder and get more and more excited because here is the heart of God. Here is the center. Here is the presence of Yahweh. And we all are about to experience that together. And so we all got to experience that just now, a bit of that. We, we, were, we weren't walking or walk, you know, walking uphill carrying things. Imagine the song at that point, perhaps. Had to take a few more breaths in there. Uh, but this is what the Jews would have experienced. This is what Jesus would have experienced. And th- today begins the last week of Jesus' life on earth. In that 33rd year of his life, as Jesus begins the climb to go to uh, uh, Jerusalem, today is Palm Sunday. Today is the day he enters into Jerusalem. And today and tomorrow morning actually really is the point of no return for him. That at this point for Jesus, if he does what he's about to do, if he does what he's been called to do by God, his whole life has been set up for this moment, that there is no return. That he will, in fact, that first domino will fall in the last week of events uh, where he, and he knows exactly what's coming. Or he knows what, he, at least he thinks he knows exactly what's coming down the pike if he does this. And this is where we're starting this morning in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Here I got some palm branches here just for the theme, you know, of what we're going to talk about. Pretty nice. Um, now, before we start, I think it's important to understand the importance of the temple. The temple is a big deal. The temple is the place uh, the Jews believed that this, was, this had the presence of God. And there were two courts in the temple. It was this magnificent structure. It was built by Solomon. Then it was destroyed in 586, 587. Um, and then it was rebuilt. Um, it's called the Second Temple Period. It's Herod's Temple. It's rebuilt. And this is the temple that Jesus sees. Um, and so Jenny and I actually got a chance to go to Jerusalem this past uh, couple years ago. And we actually got to see that the foundation is still there from, that, from Herod's temple. Now, the rest of it's been built on and built on and built on. And it's all gone now, except for one wall, one western wall, one wailing wall, which you've probably heard of, where the Jews still go to to this day to offer up prayers. But they, touch the, uh, they like to touch the, the, the base of the temple there, which was the base of Herod's temple, which is what we'll see here. Uh, take a look. Before we do this, I want to I give you a, a little thought experiment. Okay. Um, Take a look at that. Now, take a good hard look at it. You got it? Take a picture. You got it in your mind? Yes. Now, what's the difference between this tree and this one? All right, you got anything? Anybody got one? No thoughts? Now, keep that. Now, just keep that. Put that to aside in the back corner of your mind. And we're going to come back to that at the, end of the, at the end of the sermon. But in order to understand the importance of the temple, um, this is the temple. Uh, this is Herod's temple. It's massive. It's the first thing you would have seen as you come up to Jerusalem. It is the beating heart of Jerusalem. When Jerusalem's besieged in AD 70, 
This is the last place that falls. All the Jews come to this area. They hunker down as the Romans try to take over and they fight to the last man. They defend it fanatically because this was the most important thing to any Jew. The temple was a huge deal. And so you can see the outer big areas, the outer temple, the outer courtyard. That's where uh, you guys could go. You're the Gentiles, okay? Uh, the Jews, any, any you know, uh, fully converted Jew or you know, genetic Jew, cultural Jew, could go into that inner sanctuary. See the inner one? It's little. It's right here. See the inner one? If you look in, you get to go in there because you're Jewish. And, that, that, and if you go even further in, you get to go to where the priest gets to go. And even further in, you get to go where the high priest gets to go to be once a year in the presence of God, uh, Yom Kippur, to be able to give the sacrifice uh, for all of your sins, the Day of Atonement. And so this is a big deal because every Jew gets to come, not just for the celebration, not just be able to be together, but to be able to go to the temple, get your lamb, uh, or in some case, if you can't afford the lamb, you, you buy the dove, and you get, a, get that sacrifice and your, sin, your sins are therefore forgiven. And there, ha- there is no sacrifice without blood, and so we know that every, they all had to come with the sacrifice. And so it is a swell there in Jerusalem. It is packed. It is body to body. There are hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem at this time. And this is the same city that Jesus will encounter right now as we jump into Mark chapter 11. And in Mark chapter 11, it says, As they approached Jerusalem, in verse 1, And came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever Ridden. So they're on the Mount of Olives. Uh, if you look in the background, see the big mountain in the background? That's the Mount of Olives. So you can look down on the temple from the Mount of Olives. Jenny and I actually got a chance to go to the Mount of Olives. That's us at the Mount of Olives. Uh, you can see Aaron Jackson and Mar- Marshall Tucker there, Lauren Slavin, Warren Brannigan now. Um, and so we're looking down. You see, um, you see on the upper right corner the, the big gold dome? That's the uh, Dome of the Rock. Um, that's where the temple would have been. But you can see the outer wall of it, the sanctuary of it. So Jesus is right here. And so they're looking down and they're about to approach Jerusalem. So they see this. I mean, when you, it's not just Jerusalem. It's the temple. That's what we're talking about here. And Jesus says, all right, it's about to begin. Go get one of those. Go get a colt. Bring him. And we're about, this is about to go down. Now we'll read, the, we'll read through the rest of here. I, just, I think it's good that we know what we're talking about here in Mark chapter 11. Okay. Untie it and bring it here, he says, about this colt. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, <clears throat> tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people were standing around asking, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus told them to do, uh, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many uh, people spread their cloaks on the road. While others spread branches they had cut out from the fields, those who went uh, ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. We just saw that. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. You know, my first point this morning is it's easy to get excited about King Jesus at first. It's easy to get excited about King Jesus at first. Now, part of what Jesus does here, and this doesn't really hit anything with us, um, but just like a lot of illusions today, they ring if you're familiar with them. 
So if I said things like, you know, use the force, Luke, and, you know, I, I said other things um, like the force is with you, and uh, someone who read that 20, you know, 2,000 years from now might say, okay, what force is he talking about? Like, perhaps it's a force of, like, you know, within the people, or maybe it's a, like a gravitational force. Um, let's write 12 books on the word force. But obviously you get it, right? You're like, oh, it's a Star Wars reference. Okay, I kind of see what he's saying. Now, for them, it's the same thing. Jesus was not the first person to do this. Okay, this was pretty common. In fact, Alexander the Great does a form of this. This was kind of a, a common thing for someone who was a conqueror or a revolutionary or a would-be messiah. This would happen. And what's cool about this is it actually sets the stage for next Sunday, which will be the resurrection. And this is actually what the resurrection will look like, according to Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, which is that we won't actually die and just go to heaven, like, like you know, post-enlightenment Christianity tells us we, we will, perhaps. But what we'll do is we'll go and meet Christ where? In the air. We'll go meet him out there, and then we'll come back down with him. And so what happens here is the same thing. People in Jerusalem go outside to meet him, to bring him in as the king, as Hosanna. Hosanna just means, like, it's this idea of help me, save me, uh, help, help me out. And so there's this great swell of excitement. And it's a big deal. This is pretty cool. And if you're Jesus, maybe a party is like pretty encouraged by this and pretty, wow. All right, maybe they do kind of see who I am. Maybe they do kind of get what's going on here. And Zali read a great parallel passage in John where John kind of admits we didn't know what was going on there uh, at the time. We found out later what was going on, but at the time we didn't really know. But what we really see here is people are excited about Jesus. They want to bring him in. This is a totally a way to do this. Alexander the Great did this. Judas Maccabeus did this. Uh, this was a common way. It was kind of a royal thing it was, uh, to take your cloak off and you know, lay it on the ground and so the colt doesn't step on you know, the dirt and uh, and then you can have the palm branches. Like, let's make, you know, it's like the roll out the red carpet kind of thing. Let's roll out the red carpet and let's make this super uh, prestigious, you know, for, for King Jesus. And this is a great moment, but it really is just a few, maybe a few dozen people. But it's this great moment of Jesus entering into the city. And that happened today. It happened today, 2,000 some odd years ago. And this is the beginning of the week of the last week of Jesus's life. Now, I think this is uh, powerful for us because we can read this and kind of go, okay, so what? And we'll keep reading in a second, so don't worry. But so what? And I, I think it's good to acknowledge that for us, it's easy at times to get excited about Jesus. It's easy at times to get excited about the, 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 the more uh, popular ideas of Jesus. And the temptation probably is, is that we... Uh, want to preach those popular ideas, the ideas that are not wrong by any stretch of the imagination, but just popular. And the ideas of Jesus being all-inclusive and, you know, uh, everyone's equal and we all, you know, we, we all can have, help the poor and we can all, you know, love each other. Those are very popular kind of, you know, encouraging ideas about what it means to really follow Christ. Now, this was very popular for them at the time. Because a revolutionary, a would-be Messiah, is promising what? Freedom from the Romans. Freedom from their, their overlords, from those who have this yoke upon them. It's very popular if you're a slave for someone who's preaching freedom, right? Very popular if you're paying 50% of your, you know, or 60% of what you make to an overlord government to, to listen to somebody who's preaching about freedom. And so Jesus comes in, and so it's easy for us to get excited about Jesus at first, they spread their garments out, and they even ask for help. They say, Hosanna. And it's not even sometimes that hard for us to ask for help or to realize that we need help. 
That's not, you know, I think the crux of the matter. That's not the issue here. But notice this sort of eerie last sentence. Why do you think it says this? This weird sentence of, you know, he's coming in and it's so exciting. And we got, man, we got branches and we brought him down. And we laid him on the road and, he, and it, we had the colt. And it, we, he told us to go into the city and we we're like, what? And if someone asks you, and what is this weird? But then as we did it, we remembered Zechariah 14. That's the scripture. Zechariah 14, that he will come in on the Mount of Olives. And he will come in riding on the colt, or the, you know, the, the, the foal of the donkey. Like, this is all going to work out. This is, this is actually what we expected. And then he went to the temple courts. And looked around and went home. Why do we have that sentence? Why do we have the sentence of, why, not, why didn't Mark just end it there? Why do we have this whole scene of Jesus going to the temple? Why does Jesus go to the temple? And no one's there. And we don't really know. But perhaps it was that he was encouraged by these few dozen people who were singing to him. But he was perhaps expecting a priestly welcome. Maybe perhaps he excited. He went and he went into the to the heart of Jerusalem to see what's the state of things in here. Now let's keep reading. After Jesus looks around and goes back to Bethany, says the next day as they were leaving Bethany, so this is Monday morning. Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf. He went to find out if it had had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. Because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he, and as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be a called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came... So Monday night now, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that, they, uh, believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Okay, what in the world is going on? There's a tree. There's temple courts. Jesus lost his mind. He started flipping stuff. He started yelling at the temple. What happened? So the first point is that it's easy to get excited about King Jesus. And the second point, it's hard to let King Jesus disciple our hearts. It's hard to let King Jesus disciple our hearts. Now, Jesus could have easily gone and celebrated okay i got a few dozen followers but he goes right to the temple he says i'm going right to your heart jerusalem i see that you'll look like you got what's going on going on just like that tree you look like you got fruit you look like you're bearing fruit so i'm gonna go inspect you further let me go get a closer look you look good you come to church you sing the songs 
You know the disciple lingo. You say words like encourage and struggling, and you're pretty on point, and you know how to really get by on a surface level. But Jesus says, I get all that. But just as the fig tree, just as the fig tree's leaves covered up the fact that this tree was not fruitful, so was the magnificence of the temple covering up the fact that Jerusalem was not fruitful. And Jesus went right to the heart of the matter. And he says, I'm going right to your heart. And we're going to deal with some things, Jerusalem. We're going to deal with what's really going on here. And he goes in and he sees exactly what's happening. And it's a mess. The outer courtyard, which, by the way, was supposed to be for Gentiles to be able to pray and to get to know God so that they could know God more and better to go into the inner sanctuary. This has become, it's turned into a Middle Eastern bazaar. It's been turned into a marketplace so that people can buy and sell and things. So literally, where you're, people are traveling for miles, for days to go pray, to go be with God. And notice Jesus says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Not just you, for all nations. But you've turned it into something else. A.K.A. the temple had a specific purpose that was mutilated. It was, it was distorted. Uh, and because of that, it was causing people, it was entrenching thousands of people to be in sin because they had basically turned what God had given a specific purpose into what they wanted it to be. And you had money changers there because you had to use a shekel in order to buy the, the animals, but they, all they had was Roman money. But they had plenty of marketplaces outside the temple. They didn't need it to be in here. They didn't need it to be in here. And even as you're trying to go worship God, you have to pass 10 salesmen you know, who are trying to take advantage of you. And Jesus says, this is ridiculous. I'm done with this. This is the temple. This is your heart, Jerusalem. And he flips tables. And he he doesn't say it here, but he makes a whip out of cords. I don't know how long it took, but maybe he's like, house of prayer. What are these guys doing? You know, he's he's got some time to like think about it, but he makes the whip and he starts driving and he beats the ground with blows. And he says, what is going on here? It's a pretty, pretty crazy situation. And notice what the chief priests and the elders do. How do they respond? This is the moment. This is the temple action that kills Jesus. Everything else up to this point, Jesus could have walked away and said, uh, I don't have to die for them. Jesus wasn't on the number one, you know, most wanted list at this point, but he was now. He had just gone to the heart of Jerusalem and he had just dealt with it. He had dealt with the sin of God's most precious child. And, and the child didn't like it. In fact, so much the child wanted to kill Jesus for it. The child got defensive. You know, this is in a lot of ways, you know, a big metaphor for what Jesus does with us. Okay, we are good at getting excited about Jesus. And we can say, praise God. And we can say things like, how was your quiet time? And we can come to church and we can smile. But when Jesus gets to our heart and exposes something ugly... This is when we struggle. This is when people walk away from the church. A lot of people start studying the Bible to get baptized here and other places. A lot of people also stop. And they usually stop when they're challenged. They usually stop. They usually stop. They usually leave God when something is exposed in their heart, something ugly, and they look for a way to kill Jesus. They respond the same way. And we do the same. And even if we got baptized, doesn't mean we're off the hook. Doesn't mean we're like, oh, well, those people, they're the worst, but I got baptized. So yeah, I'm pretty solid. Doesn't mean we're off the hook. Baptism could just be our leaves. 
right? Of I'm good. You can hide behind that. But Jesus says, I get that you look fruitful, but I'm going to go take a, a, a deeper look. I'm going to go inspect the situation a little bit deeper. And Jesus wants to get to the heart. Well, why? I thought Jesus came to Jerusalem to die for our sins. If that's the case, why does he go right to the temple and act like this? Why not just say, hey, guys, I know you're sinful, but I'm going to die for your sins. And then you can keep on doing this. I'm going to go die for your sins so you can just keep on being prejudiced, hypocritical, and self-focused. And self-deceived, by the way. Because they're not aware of what they're doing. It's not like they planned this out. They've lost all sense of what they're doing. And Jesus comes in to show them. It's because Jesus understands how important your heart is. Jesus did not come to die for your sins to have a blank slate. He came for your heart. Jesus came to win over your heart. And Jesus came to begin a process of transformation that begins in your heart. And that is so difficult, especially for us, like me, who, aren't exact, who become slaves to our hearts and don't even know it. We're slaves to our emotions. We're slaves to how we feel. We, get, we have fits of rage. We yell at people. We get angry. We, 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 we cuss people out, if not out loud, but in our hearts. We put people down. We, we just get self-focused when things get hard. And then we, and then we wait for it to pass. We wait for, wait for things to get better. And then we're like, hey, good morning. Happy Sunday to you. We can all pretend. There's a lot of people pretending. And if you want to go pretend at a church where they deal with that, by all means, go do it. But Jesus did not come for us to just keep on pretending. He came so that we can deal with our hearts. And that's a hard thing. I'm not saying it's easy. It's a difficult thing. But thank God we have Jesus who's doing the sorting out and not us. But Jesus comes in and he wants to deal with our hearts. You know, repentance is not a new thing to a Jew. We think, oh, repentance is a big deal. Repentance is the idea of changing your mindset and therefore your actions. Anytime in the Bible someone talks about bearing fruit, bear the fruits of repentance, it's this idea of changing. It's like, I see that you say you changed, but did you really change? Where's the fruit? Where's the demonstration of that? And uh, Acts 26, Paul puts it pretty well. He says, I preached that they should repent. Well, what does repent, repent mean? To turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Now, look at a tree that has fruit, okay? Does the fruit, is the fruit the source of life for the tree? Mm-hmm. It's not. The fruit does not provide life for the tree. The fruit is evidence of life within the tree. So the goal is not, oh, I have to go make some fruit happen. I have to go do some things. I have to go make some deeds you know, go down here so I can prove to people that I've repented. No, no, you flipped it. The goal is to have a change of mindset, a change of heart, to give your heart to Jesus so that it'll be evident. It'll be obvious. It'll be easy. And it is. Anybody who studied the Bible has seen that, man. I've seen it in Josh Himanaka as he studied the Bible. It's an obvious change. Man, he's, Josh sent out a group me message on the snow day. Like, I know today we could binge watch Netflix, but instead let's draw closer to God. I was like, what? I said, who sent that? Josh Himanaka, baby. That's sweet. A few months old Christian. But I'm like, that, that's repentance. That's his heart. It's evident, you know. And there's, it's, it's easy to see when, when people have changed. Man, they're, it's totally different. Yeah. Instead of making excuses, it's, no, no, I got to be there. I got to be humble. I got to get advice. We're doing something you never even thought of before. Yeah. But it's evidence of what's really going on in here. Uh, the NET, I believe, says a little bit different. They should repent and turn to God, performing deeds consistent with repentance. These deeds are consistent with repentance. They, 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 they're evidence of what's really going on. You know, it's obvious. Anybody go to Carves Mountain, right, and pick apples? 
It's a great thing to do. Great encouragement date if you need an idea. But pick apples, right? And when you go to Carter's Mountain and pick apples, I get excited. I love the uh, Jonah Golds. Jonah Gold is the, is the best apple there, if you, have, if you ever want to know. I love Jonah Gold. It's a little sweet. That's why I like it. It's a good pie apple. But you go there, and I can't, can you imagine going to Carter's Mountain, which has one job, really, which is to have some stinking apples. And so you go there, and you're like, hey, okay, I'm excited. We, you know, my, my, my parents you know, flew in from Dallas. You know, Jenny's parents flew in from Philly, and we're here to get some apples, okay? So wh- where should we go? There's Fuji. There's Jonah Gold. I know there's, there's a lot of different kinds I can't remember right now. But where are the apples? Where should we start? Lower Hill, Upper Hill? Where should we go? They go, ah, we don't actually have any apples here. I'd be like, What? Why? You're, you're Carter's Mountain. You're an apple orchard. You lied to me. Why would you do that? Everyone came. You had promise of fruit. And there would obviously be some hurt. But it's not just about Jesus being hurt. What is it that hurts Jesus here? Notice what he says. He says, Jerusalem, you're supposed to help these people. The Gentiles are coming in to learn about God. The Gentiles are here to pray. The Gentiles are here to try to become people of God. And you are stopping them. You are inhibiting other people from knowing God. So Jesus' heart, even in this moment, was not self-focused. It was not, ah, they don't really love me. And perhaps there was a bit of that. Perhaps it was a bit of Jesus feeling hurt. But he doesn't say that. He goes, guys, this is a house of prayer for all nations. Look at them. They cannot, they have to walk by 12 salesmen to pray because of you. And it crushes Jesus. That's the depth of his compassion. That's the depth of Christ's selflessness. And so this, even in this moment, it's not, I'm going to die for you. And here you are. I'm going to die for you. And you don't even care. It's not so much that there's a piece of that, but it's guys, you've lost your way. You've lost your purpose. And he speaks up to them, you know, when we, talk, when we think about repentance, it's, it's difficult for us to repent. Uh, no one likes this, I, I, by the way. It's one of the least common things to preach. If you, walk, if you, drive, by, if you drive on Rio, there's like 12 churches on Rio. And it, none of them, I don't think, have the little sign out front. Maybe a couple have those little signs. But other cities have the little signs out front of the churches. And it always says little, you know, uh, you know pithy things. But I don't usually see, like, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I don't usually see change. You need to change. Like, you need to stop. Like, you need to turn around. Usually it's something about God's love, or we're all okay, or Jesus cares for you, Jesus died for you, these things. But repentance is not a popular thing, and it makes sense why. Because if, you know, Jim Sabula tells me, hey, Drew, you know, I, I've been changing. I've been doing some things different, man. I no longer, you know, yell at my kids like I used to. I no longer do this, do that. And I can say, hey, Jim, that's awesome. But then what if Jim tells me, Drew, you should stop yelling at your kids. You know, you should stop talking to Jenny like that. You should stop drinking so much. You should stop sleeping around. You should stop. You should stop. You should stop. What happens to me? Hypothetically, what happens? I get defensive. I say, don't talk to me like that. That's none of your business. That's my life, not yours. You can't talk to me like that. I'm okay. Jesus died for me. I'm good, right? That's the issue we fight every day on grounds. That's the issue you fight at JMU. That's the issue you fight right now in your heart is that as Jim calls me to repent, I struggle with defensiveness. Some of us don't just get defensive, we get self-piteous. We get, oh, you're so right. I am the worst. I could never do this. If people could just help me more, no one helps me. I'm the only one here trying. I'm the only one here reaching out to people. I'm the only one here who ever says anything. I'm the only one. I'm the only one. We get self-piteous. Yeah. We either get defensive and blame others 
uh, or we get self-piteous and blame ourselves. And either way, we're missing that mark. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any sword. And you know what? A lot of times with swords, we don't want that thing to cut us. If someone came at me with a blade, I wouldn't say bring it. I'd be like, no, don't cut me. With the Bible, we say, no, no, no. I don't want to let that in my heart. I don't want to deal with my lust. I don't want to deal with my pride, my stinky, disgusting arrogance that puts everybody off. I don't want to deal with my envy. I don't want to deal with my insecurity. I don't want to deal with what I said to you last week. Let's just move on. I don't want to have to reconcile with my fit of rage with what I said to you a couple weeks ago. Let's just move on. Let's just get the water under the bridge. But Jesus came to deal with our hearts. He knows how important it is. He knows how we have to address these things or it'll kill us. You know, Hebrews 13 says a bitter root in your heart and it'll grow. It'll grow. It'll destroy you. And this is so important because this is the essence of what the gospel is. The gospel, we talked about this a lot, but the gospel is not our sins are forgiven. The gospel is, is that God has loved you so much that you get to be a part of his transformation, that you get to have within you his Holy Spirit that will begin a process of transformation that c- continues for the rest of your life, that it'll never be done, that you get to be reconciled back to creation, that you get to be called to be who you always were supposed to be. And that can only happen if you get off the stinking throne, if you allow Jesus to be the one to deal with your heart. Can you imagine if, uh, if the uh, elders and the teachers of the law uh, had listened to Jesus, had said, wow, guys, he made some points. Like he, let's, let's talk to him. Let's double back and see what he meant by that. Like, what, hey, Jesus, how could we grow? We didn't really think about that with the marketplace in the outer you know, sanctuary. But we can change it. What, what would it look like, Jesus, to change? Imagine if there was just an ounce of humility on their part. Instead of, no, fear, insecurity, defensiveness to go kill Jesus. And that's us too. It's not just them. Imagine if you just had an ounce of humility. Imagine if a part of you, instead of destroying the other person or putting them down or trying to run away from what happened, because it happened. I bet a sin was exposed in you this past week by somebody else. Perhaps it was just nature of events. You were trying to manipulate things and your sins caught up with you. And if it hasn't happened this week, it'll ha- or last week, it'll happen this week. How did you respond? Did you run? Did you avoid people? Did you say, that's not my fault? Did you pass blame? Did you get self-piteous? Did you get defensive? How will you respond? You know, imagine if the chief priests and the elders were like, man, if Jesus had just talked to us, you know, with a little more patience, and if he wasn't so, you know, wild and angry, maybe we would have listened to him. But he was just flipping tables, and he was just crazy, so we just didn't even... Jesus, now it's, it's indignation. But that's how we do, that's what we do to other people. We say, man, if you would have just talked to me a little nicer, maybe I would listen to you. If you would have just... And we put all these parameters on people, and we just, we, we won't let Jesus into our hearts. And the, the two biggest ways that Jesus can enter our hearts is through, um, probably three, scripture, prayer, and each other. And the, probably the hardest one is each other. Because, right, I mean, it's, it's difficult. Uh, you ever done something, you ever, it's called ad hominem, when you attack somebody's personality. But everyone ever talked to you and they're like, hey, I think you could be a little, it usually happens with um, married couples or roommates. Hey, I think you could be a little bit more, you know, clean around the house. You could do, you know, maybe clean the dishes a bit more. And then they say, oh, this coming from the guy who's always late. <laughs> well, what did you just do, right? You, 
you basically changed the whole subject. It's not about that at all. You just attack their character to, just, to basically not have to deal with what they said. It's not, not about the dishes anymore. You just, you just don't want to deal with it. And we do that with each other, right? We do, hey, I think that you can grow in this. Oh, okay, this is coming from, you know, like, oh, you're telling me I could give more? You're telling me I could change? You don't even have kids. I have four kids. I have three kids. You're telling me I could do this? Are you kidding? This is coming from the person? And we do that in our hearts and our heads. And we, and we don't let Jesus in. And Jesus is just trying to get in there to help. And here, I think, is a, is, is, a, is a crucial aspect, a crucial point of what we're talking about here. Jesus tells a parable about a fig tree in Luke 13. Hop over there. Hop over to Luke chapter 13. We're okay on time, winding down. You know, it's tough, it's tough to deal with our hearts. And I understand that we won't always understand. We won't always know exactly what's going on. Um, a powerful scripture is in John 6. When Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, and everyone's freaking out because they're like, what in the world is he talking about? And then Jesus asked the apostles, a great section at the end of John 6, do you want to leave me too? You can almost hear the hurt in Jesus' voice. Do you want to leave me as well? And Peter says something I love. He says, we don't know what in the world you're talking about, but we know that you are the son of God and we're not going anywhere. And a lot of times we think you have to understand perfectly what's going on in your heart. You don't. You don't have to know what's going on in there. I don't know what's going on in there half the time. But Jesus is not saying we all have to be clairvoyant. You know, we all have to have perfect, you know, uh, you know, psychological and emotional discernment. It's not what he's saying. It's not the pressure he wants to put on us. We simply have to learn the virtue of never giving up. We have to learn the virtue of humility. We have to allow Jesus to do his work in there, to, to bring this to each other. It may take time. It may take months. It may take years. It's not about your moralistic perfection. It really is about just let Jesus in. Let him do his thing. Let him expose and be humble to it. And here's what I mean. Luke 13, verse 1. Then he, or not verse 1. I think it's like verse 4. I didn't write it down. But he tells the parable after um, he talks about repent or perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. Uh, 6, verse 6. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. And he went to look for fruit on it, but he didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard (coughs) for three years, now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and I haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So a couple things to note. This is a fig tree, an already very fruitful tree. Fig trees bear uh, fruit three out of four seasons. So even when Jesus and the other thing we just looked at, where Jesus goes, man, you don't even have fruit, and I'm going to curse you. And, it's, and it even says in the scripture, it wasn't the season for figs. Like, even the apostles were like, what is he doing? It's not the season. Like, what are you mad at? What are you angry about? Um, but in general, it's a very fruitful tree. I think the, the idea, obviously, is, is that there was a promise of a perception of, the, of fruitfulness, that there would be leaves, and the leaves cover what could be fruit. But here, we have a fig tree, an already very fruitful tree, planted where? In a vineyard. Vineyard is reserved with the best soil. So it's, it's a, it's a, this thing is set up for fruit. It's got the best soil. It's a fig tree. And the owner says, I've been coming for three years to see if there's any fruit on this thing. And it's using up my good soil, my vineyard soil. Why is there no fruit? Cut it down. Well, this is, this is God in us, right? God's like, I've been coming for 20 years to see if you'll change. 
I've been checking in on you for 30 years to see if you change. And you haven't. And I put you in a good situation. I put that person in your life. I put those great parents in your life. I put that person in your class. I gave you a Bible. It was sitting on your desk. I gave you so many things. I set you up. And you still haven't changed. And there's that caretaker who comes along and says, listen, give it one more year. I'm going to go fertilize it. I'm going to go help. I'm going to go give this thing one more chance. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here for us. Is Jesus understands, listen, A, it's true. The expectation is to bear fruit. But we've had a lot of time. We have no excuses. We've got to change. It's all there in front of us. There's no reason not to let Jesus deal with our hearts. It's not about being perfect. It's about letting Jesus in. But Jesus says, I'm going to give him one more shot. I'm going to fertilize it. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to go die for him. I'm going to go love him so much that it's going to shake them out of their self-focus. I'm going to go show them not just how to live. I'm going to show them how to die. I'm going to take care of my family. I'm going to evangelize as I go to the cross. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to love you. I'm going to be everything they'll ever need in life because I've been tempted in the same way. I'm going to give them no way out. I'm going to love them to their heart's bottom so they can always have someone to turn to. This is Jesus. This is the beginning of the last week of his life. And he does it because he loves you. He does it because he loves the world. And he wants us to be able to know that so that we can allow change to happen. If you think that you have to change to achieve some sort of standard, you will fail. This is not about that. This is about realizing that all love requires sacrifice. And love is not about Jesus accept me for who I am. Love is he sacrificed himself for us. Why wouldn't we sacrifice ourselves for him? That he put us first. Why wouldn't we put him first? And isn't it what affects people in the world, not what a really cool church logo? It's not, hey, please come to my church. That doesn't change people. You know what changes people? What changed you? What, what do people always say? Man, I, everyone gave me a hug. Man, I went into that church and six people got my phone number. Man, I, I could not get them to stop calling me. Man, they were talking to me about my purity. I've never talked to brothers about my purity my whole life. I've been going to this other group on, on grounds. We never talk about pornography. We talked about pornography in the second meeting with these guys. They're already talking about it. They're already dealing with it. They have blocks on their phone. They, talk, they make sure that they don't gossip about each other. They spend a lot of time together. They're different. They're crazy. There's really only one group on grounds that gets, maybe two groups on grounds that get persecuted, right? The Mormons for, you know, pretty much crazy theology. But we, us for our conduct, right? It's conduct. It's you shouldn't proselytize so aggressively, right? It's you, you guys are different and you're, you're just, you're a different kind of group, right? But what affects people? What is a light to people? It's when our attitude and our behavior changes. That's what Jesus realizes is the most powerful thing in the world. But it's also a people who knows that they're not perfect, but that we're always going to strive to be like Jesus. And so just as we talked in the beginning about those two trees uh, and what the difference was between them, you know, a lot of people look good. A lot of people look like they're fine. They dress well. They speak well. They're okay. They, a lot of people look like this. But you know what Jesus says is, I want to go have a closer look. I want to go take a look at your heart. I want to see what's going on in there. I want to be able to help you be able to be godly. I want you to be able to deal with your 20-year addiction. 
I want you to be able to have a marriage that's incredible. I want your kids to be able to be disciples and their kids and their kids. I want you to be able to see what freedom uh, from pornography addiction is like. I want you to be able to see what a life is that's not based on your career or your grades. That Jesus came to give us life and life to the full at that. But it requires a closer inspection. It requires intimate connection. It requires time. Jesus loves us that much. Are we willing to let him in and inspect? And if amen, he will, with all of us, find areas. He'll find that precinct in your heart, that little corner, and go, what's going on here? And you're like, "Ah." you have two options. You can be prideful, defensive, and run away. You could be piteous, or you could say, Jesus, help me. Hosanna, help me. You are King Jesus. Show me the way. Help me out. I know I'm not perfect. Help me out with this. Just like the chief priests and elders could have done. Help us repent. And in this way, church, let's, not, let's remember that Jesus didn't come just to die for our sins. He came for our hearts. He came to love us. And he came to reconcile us back into a transformed colony of God. Amen. And to God be the glory. Right, we'll now close with the final song. Stand up. Uh, we're going to come down here with uh, Psalm 734, Wade in the Water.